You are now listening to the Rose of Sharon Church podcast. It is our prayer that God challenges your heart during this week's message. If you would like to let us know what God is doing in your life, please email us at rostnshare at gmail.com. We're glad you're here. Welcome home to Rose of Sharon Church. John chapter 4, I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. It's my favorite reading translation. Um, They are all great translations to study because you can't take just one because the Bible wasn't written in English. And so every translation has their own way of translating certain words that another scholar might have seen it differently. And so we need to study more than one translation to be able to get the meaning of what God intended because the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek. And so we need to dig a bit deeper. So I'm going to be reading from New Living Translation, John chapter 4. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and he returned to Galilee. He had to go. I say had to. Had to go through Samaria on the way. That's a super important little phrase. You need to keep that in your mind for a moment. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please, give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone to the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift that God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a bucket or a rope, she said. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water that I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. Change the subject. She said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband. For you had five husbands. And now, you aren't even married to the man that you're living with. So you certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? While we Samaritans claim it is here in Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped. And Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. While we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and and in truth. We've all heard this story. And we're going to talk tonight about some particular things in this story. We're not going to talk about everything that's in this story because I need about 10 messages to tell you everything that God showed me out of this story. So we're not going to go there tonight or we'll spend the entire night here and tomorrow we'll just go straight on to work from here. (laughs) Paul did that once, but we're... We're not doing that today, unless the Lord says differently. But there are so many things that on the surface don't seem to be very important, but they are. 
They're very important to what we're trying to understand out of this passage tonight. Uh, the word worship, we use it, we throw it around. It's all in the American church. It, it's a word that is ingrained in our vocabulary that we use in the American church, and it has been for hundreds and hundreds of years. Here recently, in recent years, it's even taken on a greater emphasis, and we, we place all of this this meaning behind the word worship, and, and we equate it to singing songs a majority of the time now, or worshiping the Lord, lifting hands, singing songs, coming to the altar, giving Him uh, praise, and all those are aspects of worship, but we've missed something along the way with all of that. A huge thing that we've missed along the way. And we're going to find out exactly what that is. So it's like the new buzzword of the church. People will come and they'll say, man, the worship was great today. The preaching, not so much. I hope you don't say that tomorrow. That's not a full definition, though. At, at that point, when we say those kind of things... And we have to learn to retrain our vocabulary a little bit. When we say those kind of things, what we are implying is that the singing and the music and the corporate worship that we did together, that that's what worship is, and that the rest of it's added things that we do to it, and then we call all of that together a worship service. But I want to show you something incredible tonight that you probably didn't know. The church has lost touch with what biblical worship is. We're going to find out exactly what God says about worship tonight. So the definition of the English word worship is this. The feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. Or to honor or reverence as a divine being or a supernatural power. Or to regard with great or extravagant respect, honor, or devotion. Okay? Those are great definitions. And they define the English word worship. But here's where the problem comes in. I told you at the very beginning that the Bible wasn't written in English. So the English word worship was not created yet when the Bible was written. The English word worship, in our Bible, there are seven Hebrew words that define worship. And there are five Greek words on top of that that define what is translated as worship in the Bible. So every time that your Bible says worship, it could be one of 12 different words. Hmm. So what does it mean? Do you, do you begin to see why just reading on the surface the Bible does not get us where God wants us to be? There are things we have to understand that God wants to reveal to us, but we only get those things if we dig in just a little bit. We have to begin to understand the language that the Bible was written in. And I'm not saying that we're all going to college and we're studying Greek and we're getting a degree. What I'm saying is that we need to put some effort into at least trying to study just a bit deeper into the Word to really understand what is God trying to say to me through His Word. So the one word, worship, is actually 12 different words throughout the Bible. So our one English word can't mean all 12 things. Do you see where we're going with this? So when your Bible says worship, how do you know exactly what it is telling you about worship in that word? You've got to find uh, what the word was in the original language. As a matter of fact, this is going to surprise you, I think. Did you know there is no word in the New Testament 
that is the equivalent of our word worship when we use it, worship service. Did you know that? Every time that the word worship is translated in the New Testament, it never means a church service. Ever. He used other words for that throughout the Bible. There is no word in the New Testament, which is where church services originated, there's no word in there that says, when it's translated as worship in English, that meant a church service as we use it today. Hmm. So let's find out exactly what's going on in this story and what does this worship that Jesus has brought up mean? Because it doesn't mean a church service. So let's find out a little more about that. The story about Jesus and the Samaritan woman. It's a good place to begin digging into what worship is really all about. Do you know why? Because Jesus described it. And how much closer can you get to the Lord than Jesus describing it? You can't get much closer into what God really wanted to say than when Jesus said it. So this is not Paul saying it. This is not Peter saying it or anyone else in the New Testament. This is Jesus himself saying it. So I would say that we could probably take that and study it and figure out a little bit about what God intended worship to be. Does that make sense to you? Makes sense to me. So we're going to dig into this story just a little bit. You see, there's got to be more to this thing that we call worship today than what is implied in today's society and culture. If there's not, then God's not really all that He says He is in the Word. There's got to be some more to this. Why do I say that? It's a pretty bold statement. It's because of this. We call something worship where we come and we stand and we sing songs and we honor the Lord and we lift our hands and we give Him praise. Sometimes we cry and we do all kinds of things in our worship service and we go out and we live like the devil the rest of the week. That's not worship at all. Not one bit. So let's analyze this story because that's exactly what Jesus said. So I told you to remember that Jesus had to go through Samaria. He did not have to go through Samaria because it was the only road to go where he was going. Jesus was by the river. He was by the Jordan River and he was baptizing or his disciples were baptizing. And they were on their way to Jerusalem. Okay, So they were about 40 miles or so away. To get to Jerusalem... Because the Jews hated the Samaritans so much, they had a road that bypassed Samaria. So they could get to Jerusalem, crossing the river, and go that way. And so that way actually would have been a little bit shorter. But Jesus, because he had an appointment with someone, said, I have to go this way because this is the way that I'm going to meet this lady at the well, and a couple of things are going to happen here in this story. Jesus is going to reveal something that he doesn't really reveal anywhere else, and he reveals it to this Samaritan woman. And to us sitting here, that doesn't really seem like we don't really know. Okay, so she was a Samaritan. So what? He was a Jew. So what? Well, it's pretty important. So let's find out a little bit about this lady. Because Jesus had a divine appointment with someone, a sinner, who wasn't even seeking God at all. But Jesus was seeking her because he had a desire to reach her, speak this truth to her, minister to her and her city, and so many people there received Jesus because of this encounter. Jesus broke down ethnic, racial, and religious barriers with this one story. So the hostilities between the Jews and the Samaritans 
went back for centuries. How many of you guys read your Old Testament? Hmm. <laughs> In the Old Testament, you'll find out that the nation of Israel was one nation under three kings. Saul, David, Solomon, and then what happened? Does anyone know? There was a war between two brothers. The nation split. Southern kingdom, northern kingdom. Southern kingdom, called Judah, consisted of Judah and Benjamin. Northern kingdom, called Israel, also Samaria. The nation is split in two. The northern kingdom. These are still Jewish people in this northern kingdom. And still Jewish people in the southern kingdom. But in 722 B.C., the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. And do you know what they did? They removed all the Jews. And then do you know what they did? They populated the country with foreigners. So they deported most of the Jews, replaced them with foreigners, and those foreigners intermarried with the remaining Jews, and their religion became a mixture of Judaism and all the foreign religions that the foreigners brought with them. When the exiles of the southern kingdom returned from Babylon to Judah, the Samaritans, as they were now called in the northern kingdom, offered to help. And you can read about that in Ezra. And they offered to help. The scholars feel that they didn't really have an ulterior motive, yet the Jews in the southern kingdom felt like that they did. So because of that, Ezra refused their help on rebuilding the temple with them. They basically came to him and said, we worship the same God that you do. Let us help you rebuild the temple. Ezra said, no, you'll never touch a thing here at this temple. You're enemies of Israel. You're inbred. You've got this mixed up religion that you don't, you don't even know what's going on. You don't worship our God at all. When in fact they, they did practice Judaism along with some other stuff going on. And so because of that one encounter, conflict continued to grow and to grow and to grow. The same thing happened when Nehemiah was building the walls. Finally, at about 400 B.C., the Samaritans built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim where Jesus is close to you right now. And then in about 128 B.C., a Jewish leader named John, I don't know, I, something, can't pronounce his last name, uh, came and burned it down. Okay, 128 B.C., a little over 100 years before Jesus arrives on the scene burned their temple to the ground. Now, how do you think they felt about that? So, obviously, that did not improve the relations between the Jews and the Samaritans. So, the Jews view the Samaritans as a mixed breed, mixed religion, there was intense hostility between the two over those things that had happened. And so we can't really understand this story if we don't know that story. Otherwise, it just seems like, oh, you know, Samaritans, Jews, they don't get along. No, no, no. No, it was very, very hostile situation. And so Jesus walks into this situation to meet this woman... Now, when the Bible says that he had to go there, it's because he had an encounter with this lady. And so he shows up 
And I don't even know what was going through his disciples' minds at this point. He shows up. He sends them into town to buy food. A Jew would never, ever, ever spend their money buying something from a Samaritan. And they would never eat their food. Ever. So Jesus arrives on the scene, and the description of him standing by the well is actually not him standing by the well, but more literally, he was sitting on top of the well. There's like no way you could miss this guy just sitting up here in the middle of the day, and this woman comes out at noon. Now, I don't know a lot about getting water from the well because I've never had to live that way, but I understand that you don't go draw water in the middle of the day. My understanding is that you go draw water in the morning time when it's cool or in the evening time when it's cool again because there's going to be a whole lot of people from the city coming out to draw their water and you're going to be out there for a little while. Why would you want to be out there in the middle of the day when the sun's beating down? So why is this woman there? Maybe it's because the enlightenment Jesus gave us she was probably an outcast in her town. This lady's been divorced five times. Now she's living with another guy. And you know all the women in town were talking. Because every morning, the social place of town, you know where it was? The well. All the ladies come out to draw the water for the day, and share all the gossip they heard overnight. And so this lady, shunned by her own people. So Jesus didn't only show up to talk to a Samaritan. He just went one better than that. And he's like, I've, I've come to see this Samaritan woman. But beyond that, she's a woman who everybody talks about in town. I don't think Jesus could have found anyone in that town who was more despised than she was. Can you imagine this scenario? And so Jesus sent the disciples, and I don't know why, but he sent them all into town. Maybe he wanted them to see what, what it was like being in the, among the Samaritans. I don't know. But he sent them all into town to buy food. Now, it didn't take all of them to go buy some food. But he sent them all. So he was there alone with this lady. Jesus used some tact in his reaching out to this lady, though. You see, someone who has a grudge, because she apparently has a grudge against Jews. That's pretty obvious in the way she's talking to Jesus. When someone has a grudge, very rarely are they going to allow you, the one they're holding a grudge against, to help them do something. He could have walked up and said, here, let me help you get that water, get that, draw that water bucket up out of there. And what would she have said? I got it. I got it. I don't need any help. I got it. So Jesus, being the intelligent man that he was, very wise man, he knew that she would probably respond positively to someone who needed help. So what does Jesus do? He says, can I have a drink? It's the middle of the day. The sun's beating down. The Bible clearly tells us that Jesus is flat wore out from walking 40 miles over the past day and a half. He looks wore out sitting there on the well. Do you think she could really say, no, don't think so. Not going to give you any water. You're a Jew. We don't give Jews water here. That's pretty much the attitude of the Samaritans and the Jews in that day. It would be the same as the history in the United States when years ago there was segregation going on. That's exactly what we're reading right now. The same exact thing. But not only did Jesus ask to give a drink, he was going to drink from our cup. 
He didn't bring His own cup. So Jesus is really reaching out to this woman, and there's a reason for that. It's because He knows this opportunity that's about to happen is very critical to the kingdom of God. And so they begin discussing things. They talk about water, and he starts talking about this living water, and she doesn't know what he's talking about because she said, well, you don't even have a bucket. You don't have a rope. I don't know how you think you're going to get water out of that well. She has no idea that he's moved to a spiritual level at this point. So then he starts kind of changing the subject, and he talks about her husbands. And then after she realizes that he knows things about her that he shouldn't know, Here's this stranger, never seen before in my life, and he shows up, and he knows things about me that he shouldn't know. And she says something profound to him, and he realized at that point that she was was ripe to be harvested for the kingdom. She said, sir, I know you're a prophet. Now, on the surface, that seems like, okay, sure Jesus is a prophet, he told her what had happened in her, in her past. Jesus is able to tell the future. Jesus, sure, he's a prophet. But you've got to remember this, the context of our story. The Samaritans only believed they do worship God, by the way, because they are still part Jewish. But they only believe the first five books of the Bible in the Old Testament are the Word of God. They don't believe in any of the other Jewish writings. They don't believe that there was a prophet after Moses. Here's this woman calling Jesus a prophet when her religion has taught her that there are no more prophets. And she goes on later to even say, You're the Messiah. And she determined that by the prophecies that were in the first five books of the Old Testament. They had never read any of the other writings because they didn't believe they were from God. So on limited information, this lady is more receptive to the spiritual things going on around her than all the Jews had been that Jesus had encountered so far. So Jesus changes subjects again, and he gets ready to talk about worship. And she said, why is it that that temple in Jerusalem is the only place that we can worship? And Jesus is foretelling right now in this moment that the Mosaic system is about to be gone and that the new covenant is about to take place. When he said the time's coming, he says, as a matter of fact, it's already here. Where it's not going to matter if you worship on this mountain and they're sitting right by where the temple was that the Samaritans worshipped. They were within about a half a mile of that temple. He says, it's not going to matter if you worship here or if you go down to Jerusalem and worship. The place won't matter. In the Old Testament, the place mattered. You could only worship where God said that you could worship at. But in the New Testament, things are changing. And so Jesus said, True worship is about to change. And the ones who worship are going to worship in spirit, and they're going to worship in truth. The word that Jesus used there, it's the most close to our English word worship, actually, but it has nothing to do with church or service or any of that. Let me give you the actual, literal definition. It's proskuneo is the word. And literally, in Greek, it means to kiss someone like a dog Licking its master's hand. To prostrate oneself in homage. To reverence. To adore. To worship. 
That is the word that Jesus used in this verse. And he's telling her, if you're going to worship God in the way that God desires you to worship, the kind of worshipers he's seeking after, you're going to have to worship him in spirit and in truth. That's where the key is found. Worshiping in spirit is the heart connection between us and God. Okay? But worshiping in truth is this. It's living a life of obedience to God's Word. The key is found right there, and it's not a new problem. It's existed in the church ever since the beginning. You see, worshiping in spirit is a revelation of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would allow certain people to do a certain job for the Lord, but the Holy Spirit didn't reside with all believers. But that changed on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit became active in all believers. And He was poured out just like the prophecies had told. But there was a negative side of the early Christian church, early Christianity, that had to do with the fact that all kinds of people were coming to the Lord. Women, children, Gentiles, slaves, Romans, all kinds of people were coming to the Lord along with Jews. Whoever chose to follow Christ could have full access to the Holy Spirit. It's a brand new revelation. Yet, those very same people did not know the Word. And so their worship became unbalanced. And Paul had to write a whole bunch about that in Corinthians. Because that was a prime example of that church where it was full of people who had no knowledge about the Word of God, very limited. They came in and so their services were, were just wild. Things just went wild. There, and he had to write about not, not don't worshiping chaos. He said you can't have church like that. You can't get drunk when you come and have the communion. And he, there was just all kinds of things that were going on. And there were all kinds of people, because when you're, when you're unbalanced like that, when, when you have too much worshiping in the Spirit, not enough worship in the truth, then you wind up with some problems. Or if you wind up with too much worshiping in truth and not enough worshiping in the Spirit, you have other problems. So being out of balance has serious problems. People who are way off on the true side, you know what they tend to do? They tend to get judgmental. Mean. Very critical of everybody. They lack fruit of the Spirit. Their lives don't have a whole lot of love and joy, peace and patience and kindness and goodness faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all the fruits of the Spirit, they don't have a lot of that in there. So they tend to get very argumentative with people. And they become more well-known for what they are against instead of what they are for. But the other side is just as bad. People who heavily emphasize the Spirit but they never spend much time digging into the Scriptures, are susceptible to drifting into all kinds of crazy stuff. They get sucked into some really unusual things that have no backing in Scripture whatsoever. I've been in some services like those and met some people like that. God is a God of order. And there has to be balance in our worship. When Paul was addressing that to the Corinthians, he was talking about how they conducted themselves 
in their worship services a lot because they were way too far onto the spirit side of worship. And then he was condemning them for all the things that they were not doing in their everyday lives, the way they were living their everyday lives, and the stuff that was going on inside the church. You need to go read that book if you haven't read Corinthians. There's some really interesting scenarios going on that Paul addressed that were happening up in the church, and the church leaders just letting it go on like it was no big deal. I won't even get into all that because I don't have time for that. True biblical worship is a balance of two things. Attitude and acts. The attitude of the heart with which we worship God is critical to the worship that God desires. Jesus Himself said it. He said, you worship God with your lips, but your heart's far from Him. So if your heart is not where it should be, there is no worship. You're not worshiping God. Yet at the same time, the actions that are based on the attitude of wanting to honor God above everything else is just as important. Your heart can have the right attitude, and yet you don't live in a way that honors the Lord. You are not worshiping the Lord. It's as plain as that. The writer of Psalm 119, he summed it up, and that's actually where everything that, I, that I've been talking about, where it really started at in this particular verse. He summed it up. Very, very well there. As a matter of fact, before I read that, let me tell you, because um, I forgot to read this one scripture, which is very important, that had to do with the truth, just so you know that I'm telling you exactly what worshiping in truth is all about. In John 17, verse 17, Jesus said, Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. So what is truth that Jesus is referring to? The Word of God. That is truth. So the writer of Psalm, in Psalm 119, this is what he had to say. In verse 7 he said, As I learn your righteous regulations, your law, your word, that's what he's talking about, he said, as I learn those, and this next word we're coming to is one of the Hebrew words for worship, okay? He says, as I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you, I will praise you, I will worship you. That's what he's saying right here. By how? Living as I should. He didn't say a word about Singing a song, going to church, giving your offerings, lifting your hands, giving to the poor. He said nothing about any of that. He simply said this, I'm going to worship you, God, by living like you tell me to in your word. Mm. Mm. He said, Please don't give up on me. How can a young person stay pure? Mm. By obeying your word. He said, I have tried hard to find you. Don't let me wander from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might what? Not sin against you. Psalm 119, it gives us the basis for the other side of worship that we've been talking about tonight. Worshiping in truth is simply learning God through His Word and what He desires us 
to portray in our lives in the way that He wants us to live and then living that way. When you do that, you are worshiping the Lord. So we need a balance. And the problem I feel that that is taking place in the church today is that we don't have a lot of that side of worship. Too many today are lacking in worshiping God in truth because we don't place a large enough priority on the Word of God and studying the Word of God. We can barely bring our Bibles to church. So I know good and well you would never have it with you during the week. Sunday's not the only day to read it. If we will begin to place more emphasis and priority on studying the Word of God, not just skimming through and reading stuff, but saying, Lord, I want to learn. I want to learn. Pastor said it very, he had no idea what I was talking about tonight, but the Lord I know exactly gave him what to say, and he said, how we, there's a difference between knowing God and just knowing about Him. And it's exactly what Jesus told the Samaritan woman. He said, you guys know about God, but you don't know Him. Know Him. And there's a big difference between those. He said, your worship is lacking because you don't really know the Word of God. That's how you know God, by the way. How do you know about God? You read His Word because He told you all about Himself in the Word. It's the way I don't care what you feel impressed upon your heart, what comes into your mind, what this preacher said, what this prophet said to you, what was prophesied over you. If it doesn't line up with the Word of God, it doesn't mean anything. God doesn't give some new revelation that's not in His Word. If it's not in the Word, it's not of God. God finished the Word, and it's complete. And so now we, if we want to truly worship God, we've got to get into the Word and begin worshiping Him through truth. So we can't just read the Word and glance over it and Oh, Lord, I've, all right, I'm going to check off today's Bible reading. I got through that in 20 minutes today. Maybe tomorrow I could do 18. That's not getting into the Word. you got to do some studying. And then while you're studying, you see, that's where the other side of things come. When you worship God in your spirit and your heart is right and your attitude is right with the Lord, as you study His Word, you know what He does? His Holy Spirit begins to open up and reveal to you and say, you know what? You haven't seen this before, but check this out. Look at, look at what I'm saying here. And it begins to open things up to us that we didn't understand before. I've read scriptures over and over all my life, and I'll go back and read again, and I see something totally brand new in there I didn't see before. That's what the Holy Spirit does, and that is the worshiping through spirit and worshiping through truth that Jesus wants us to put those together and become a true worshiper. That's what it's all about. I could not have shared any of the stuff that we talked about with this story tonight if I had not dug in and did some research. I learned a lot from studying this message. The Lord gave me a scripture and said, this is what I want you to begin working on. And it began in Psalm 119. And then by the time I got done with it, it was, you know, all these other things connected together. And the Lord has showed me all kinds of things that I did not know before. But it took a little bit of digging and some research and learning things about the Bible and the way that it was written and its context that it was written in. You can't read things out of context, by the way. That applies to everything you read. You can't just take little nuggets of things that you like and say, okay, this is what this means. It doesn't work that way. And it doesn't work that way with the Scripture. And unfortunately, uh, the church world is full of that. 
pulling a little phrase or pulling this one scripture here, and then you got the whole context of the chapter around it that doesn't even mean anything close to what that they wanted to say, yet it sounded good, and people wanted to hear that kind of message, therefore it gets pulled out and used. And that's not the proper way to interpret the Word of God. So worshiping in spirit and in truth, it's critical that we have both sides of things. And so tonight, we're about to get ready to go into our altar time. And it's a very simple altar tonight. Because we are all, every one of us, guilty of being a bit unbalanced at some points, at some times. A little too far this way or a little too far that way. Sometimes we begin studying the Word and we do get a bit judgmental of other people who haven't quite got to the level maybe in their walk with the Lord that we are and we begin to look down on them. It's another big problem that, that Paul was addressing in the Corinthians. Because he has some Jewish guys in there who had gotten saved out of the synagogue. And they kept looking down on all these other people. Because they weren't Jews and didn't have the knowledge that these guys had. And so we're a little unbalanced sometimes. And I think that our greatest response today to an altar call for the Lord would be to simply come and declare to the Lord that we intend to live, starting tonight, according to Psalm 119.7. That beginning this very day, right now, tonight, that we will live according to that Scripture and we will start studying, not just for the purpose of saying, oh, I read my Bible today, or being able to check off on the bookmark of, I've read so-and-so scriptures for today and I'm trying to read through the Bible in a year. And that's a good thing to do. But if you're just skimming through and reading through the Bible in a year, it doesn't really accomplish a whole lot. Unless you put a little bit of effort into studying it for one purpose. To know and understand God. We want to know and understand God and what He wants for our lives. You don't have to wonder about what God wants for your life. He clearly tells us in the Word exactly how to live our life to please Him. But we won't find out what that is if we don't get into the Word and worship Him through his Word. So as we study His Word, we memorize His Word and we put it into our hearts and our minds and we begin to meditate on it. David said that he would read the Word and he would read it before he went to bed and he'd be talking to the Lord and he'd be reading the Word before he went to bed and he'd wake up in the middle of the night and you know what he was doing? He was still thinking about the Lord and the Word he had read before he went to bed. He said, I think on you all through the night. And so if we begin reading and studying the Word with that goal in mind, that we can know and understand God and His plan for our life, and then we begin transforming our lives through the Holy Spirit's power into what we are reading that God wants us to be like, that is worship. That is what worship is. It's not just a church service. It's not just a song. It's not just giving offerings. Those are all parts of our worship to God. But our worship to God rests on two things. That our heart is in it. And that we worship Him by living like His Word tells us to live. Don't come to church and go out tomorrow and live totally against what God says you should be doing and expect that to be a worship that He desires. I want you to bow with me and we're about to have altar time together. I'm not giving an altar call because we all need to pray today. And we're all going to come
and we're going to give our hearts and our minds to the Lord to say, Lord, we want to know you and understand you and give you honor and worship through our very life. So, Father, right now, I pray that you will take this message and these words that your Holy Spirit will penetrate every one of us with this message tonight. That for us to truly be a worshiper of you, that we have to get our heart lined up with you and make a connection with you through the Holy Spirit so that you can come to life inside us, Lord, through your Spirit. And that as we do, Lord, that you will open our eyes and our understanding to the Word so that we can honor you, give you worship and praise and thanksgiving through the way that we live our lives. May it always be said of us by those who meet us that we must serve the Lord God because of the way that we conduct and live our lives. May they see that inside us. The Holy Spirit tonight, as we give all to you, take our praise in our hearts, and as we declare to you tonight, Lord, that we want you to awaken us and transform our minds into a new way of thinking. That we will have a desire to study to know you. Awaken a desire in us, Lord, that we would want to know you more. To understand you better. And even though we know that our minds can never fully understand you, Lord, may we always try to know more about you.